Thank you, Ethan. I, uh, I have a word on my heart. I don't know if uh, it's a heavy word. I don't, I don't quite know the right ones, but it's, it's a spirit-led word that's just very strong and, and simple. I'd like to just call it the cost of discipleship. And uh, I was going to start these next few weeks with the Trinity, and soon we really believe in preaching the Word of God be- for a few reasons. Number one is, is that sometimes in ministry it's easy for a pastor's emotions to get affected, and then you can be in a situation and you create a whole message around that situation, and that's not spirit-led, that's situation-led, isn't it? And sometimes God speaks random words to us and we obey those, But uh, we'll be picking up soon with the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to come up with a real hipster cool title for it and be like, Hanging with Jesus or something. And those of you that are looking for that will do it. But we're going to walk through the Gospel of Luke. And interestingly enough, in December, it goes right through the whole Christmas story and then jumps right into the life of Jesus. And we're just going to see what our Savior did to 12 people that turned the world right side up and how that can happen in our own lives here. And in some ways, this really kind of jumpstarts it. In Judaism, you have three, you got a couple of ways that the rabbi would invite you into their sphere of influence. They would go up to you, and they would, shoot, they would talk with you, and if they were interested in you being part of their circle, it was never, you never invited yourself, you had to be invited, and the rabbi would say to you, come and see. And we see this in the Gospels. He says to uh, Philip, I believe it is, he says, where are you staying? He says, come and see, come and see. That's a rabbinic, fo- come, come follow, check out what's going on. And then after you made yourself consistent around that rabbi, they would give the second invitation, which was this, follow me. The apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And everybody, Jesus is the only one that gets to say, follow me. But this was very much a part of the discipleship process of, of, of Judaism and then, of course, since Jesus was the, the great one of Christianity. And when we talk about the word discipleship, it gets very blurred, doesn't it? Because we can think of the word evangelism, right? We, we can say, well, well, I'm a Christian. And, and what we do is, is we instantly think of that moment where someone said, hey, Jesus wants to get rid of all of your guilt and shame, forgive you, and you're good to go for heaven. So just pray this prayer with me. And, and uh, even those of you that are online, I'm, it's not an actual invitation to pray, but just listen to this prayer. It's like this. Uh, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, come into my heart, come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, forgive me of my sins, become savior of my life, and so on. And that is an important part of Christianity. But that is actually the first step, which is called evangelism and, and conversion, so to say. You're giving God that opportunity to come in, and, and, but it's never the first step that gets you anywhere. You're just pivoting. It's the second step that moves you forward. And that second step is called discipleship. The word discipleship comes from the word discipline, a follower, student of, which meant that when we come to Jesus, we, we, he becomes our savior. He does all the work. We acknowledge that. But then there's another part that falls on us called discipleship. Whenever students would come up to me in Bible college and I'd be like, Pastor Paul, would you please mentor me? I would always look at them and say, nope. And they would be like, 
Why? I said, because what you're asking me to do is not even keep you accountable. What you're asking me to do is to be your babysitter, to say, are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? Are you doing the things you ought to? How are you doing with your struggle or whatever? And that's not what Jesus has called anybody to. What Jesus said is, is you pursue me. That's what Jesus said. You follow me. You chase after me. In Judaism, they have a saying called, it goes like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What would happen is, is that Israel's a very dusty place, and as you walk, dust kind of kicks up behind you, almost like Arizona, and if you were covered in dust, although it was like you needed a bath, it was proof that you were so close to the master that you could hear his conversations and you were eager to listen to what he would instruct and you were ready to do what he said. In Christianity, we have made this whole thing about a simple prayer and somebody chasing after us or even maybe just simply that we go to church and we check off a box and there's this missing part of what we talked about all last month called the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which says, therefore go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them, teaching them to do. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, in all of those things that he's talking about, the center of the subject is make disciples people that will make people that will make people that will make people who are running in the right direction. And we always say this in church because, uh, let me just say this, for those of you watching online and those of you that are here, if legalism has destroyed more people's lives than heroin ever will. But levity and taking lightly the commands of Jesus has also destroyed people's lives because we've put all of the responsibility on Jesus as well. Now, understand me when I say this. My salvation has everything to do with what Jesus did for me. I can't save myself. I can't will myself to be a better person. It is only by living in the power of God's Spirit through me that I can will and do to his good pleasure. It's only me acknowledging that he's created me for good works in Christ Jesus to live a godly and a holy life. He calls me to holiness. I'm not perfect, but the question is, am I walking not in perfection? That's legalism, right? But am I walking toward perfection in the right direction? That's called discipleship. And we need to recapture that. And I'd like for you to turn your attention to Luke 15, verses 25 to 35. I'm going to read this Bible verse, which is scattered all through my paper, and then we'll come through and we'll walk. We're trusting God here because normally I deeply digest a message, and here I just had a passion burning in my heart, and as the sparks came out of the fire, I started putting them down. I was putting them down in all kinds of crazy places. Luke 20, 15, 25, listen to this. This is Jesus talking to people. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes after me, and does not hate his own mother or father or wife or children or brothers or sisters, and yes, even his, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, now he goes in and he gives these two illustrations, he says, let me, let me help you out. Let me give you a couple of metaphors. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down, count the cost, whether it's enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all will see it and will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. In other words, wow, that guy was incompetent. He had no idea. He was in over his head. He was out of his depth. He had no idea what would be involved in this, and he talked real big on the front end, and where is he now? What a joke. What a joke. That's literally what is going on there. It's talking about God demands a commitment of us to finish what we start and to resource all we have to be his disciple. Then he goes on, he says this, verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not listen, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes out against him with 20,000? Now Jesus is saying, are you counting the odds? Because the odds are going to be against you. If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he, ha he has, listen to this phrase, cannot be my disciple. This is like the fourth time he said that. He didn't say might not, eventually could become. He says, you can't be my disciple. And then he goes into this strange illustration or object lesson, and he talks about salt. And he says, salt is good. Now listen to this. Salt in the ancient world, before I read this, let me just tell you, it's, it's helpful to know this. Salt in the ancient world, they didn't have refrigeration as we know it. They did have types of refrigeration. They were really smart. They would know where underground streams were, and they would dig down about maybe 50 feet, and it would, the area would be nice and cool. I mean, you'd maybe get it to like 40 degrees in, in, the, in the Middle East, but that's as best. That's not refrigeration. So what you needed was salt, and salt's first and best use was flavoring food. And I know that it's not good for your heart anymore, but I'm sorry. You know what? Um, I'm going to be with Jesus faster, and I'm going to enjoy my salt. I'm, not, I'm just doing it. But then after salt, uh, was you'd use a little bit of that, but now you had a whole bunch of it. What would you do? You would cover meat. Why is it that you think you can eat beef jerky and it's not like loaded with bacteria because it's been salted and the, the salt pulls the water out of it? So salt, is, it's, it's stifling bacteria from forming. So it was kind of like a, really, in simple, it's a preservative to keep bacteria from culturing on food. Let's put it in our world, right? Any, anybody like Chinese food? L23, L23. Go out and you get your L23. That's General Tao's chicken, right? Or beef lo mein or uh, gugu pai pan or whatever. You get that and you bring the leftovers home. And how many of you know that Chinese food is even better the day after and you reheat it? And it's great, and you put it in the fridge, but then you forget about it, and then when you open it up, it's got like green fuzz on it. <laughs> now, apparently that's penicillin, and that actually can help bacteria in a different way, but you're not eating that. That's kind of what salt was used for, to keep bacteria from, from doing it. But then after it was used on meat, after the best was initially used for flavoring, after it was used on meat, after that, there was no good use for it anymore, so they would scrape it off of the meat, and they would put it into manure. And the reason they did that was because the manure would fertilize 
the seeds that they were trying, and the crops that they were trying to grow. But the salt would kill the weed seeds that were in it and keep them from growing up with whatever crop you were trying to plant. And now listen, this is how Jesus, you'll understand this metaphor now. Salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for soil or for manure pile. It is then thrown away. There was a point where it even reached a spot where it's no good salt anymore. It can't be used for food. It can't be used for preservation of food. It can't be used for flavoring. It can't even be useful in the manure pile. It's simply thrown in the trash, just what the L23. And the salt is us in this metaphor. The king is us in this, meta, in this illustration. The builder is us. And Jesus is saying one thing over and over again. These things, if these things are not at work in your life, you cannot be my disciple. And then he ends with the famous statement, he who has an ear, let him hear. In Judaism, actually in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek. In Hebrew, the prophets use this phrase, not he who has an ear, but it's, it's the phrase to hear something. It literally is synonymous, not with hearing with your ear, it actually is synonymous with obedience. What Jesus is actually saying here in, in, a, in a Jewish way is saying, you hear the word, you know what I'm saying, there's no confusion here. The question is, is will you do it? Now before you worry, that we're about to talk about like giving and all that kind of stuff because it goes in like Jesus starts talking about the wallet and the, the, it's funny, some of the most generous people I know have great wealth and some of the most generous people I know have nothing. And some of the stingiest people I know uh, have tons of stuff and some of the stingiest people I know have barely anything. It's just because somebody has a lot doesn't mean that they're ruled by that. I know tons of people who do not live their life that way, and yet God has stewarded to them good things, and they're blessing people, and they're, they are being blessed by God, and that's it. And then other people, God is teaching lessons through difficult times and learning and lean seasons. And so that's not a sign of whether you're blessed or not, and it's not a sign of whether you're a bad person or not. But Jesus isn't just simply talking here about all this. He's trying to get the attention of the people but he's trying to get the attention of a specific group of people. And the thing I love about Jesus is that he's willing to say what nobody else will. Think about this. It says, great crowds accompanied him. He, who wouldn't want great crowds? Whether you are a businesswoman or a salesman, and even your pastor would love a great crowd right now. It would be great. Some, I, I don't know, it's my personality, call it, call it egotism. It's actually a personality trait of mine with communication and, and people. It's like the more people that are there, the less nervous I am, the more excited I am. It's like, whoa! You ever see Tony Robbins when he gets up and he speaks to a ton of people? This is your best year ever! Whoa! Like, I get that same kind of like pump and, and, and motivation of a large crowd. Who wouldn't want that? But Jesus looks at the large crowd and he doesn't turn around and say, how can we like multiply these people and grow this church movement and do that? No, he looks at them and he turns to them and he says. And a friend of mine once talked, talked about Jesus when the, the movie Terminator and all those came out. He says, Jesus is like the Terminator, right? He sees all the people and it'd be, I'll be back. And as soon as he opens his mouth, 
he starts with these large crowds, and when he's done, the only people left are Mary, Mary Magdalene, and I think it's Martha and the apostle John at the cross. That's it. Everybody's gone. Where's the 5,000 people that got free lunch from Jesus? Gone. Where are the people at that this moment? Gone. Where are the other disciples, the other 11 disciples? Gone. Why? Because the more he talked, the more real it got about what it was to live a crucified life. Not that he was simply going to have a crucified death. The truth is, learning and discipleship doesn't happen in great crowds with pastors. It takes place in relationship, and that's what Jesus did over three years with 12 people. It's not the quantity of our relationships, it's the quality of them. He just turns to them and he says, and he starts doing it. In fact, in John chapter 6, verses 66, I know it makes the number 666, but there's no bad thing about this. It's good news. Jesus says, it says this, Jesus gets up and he says, I'm the only way to get to the Father. We did communion, right? He said, unless you drink this cup, and it, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, talking about communion, the idea of have buy-in to the fact that it's my death that will bring you life. He says, unless you do this, unless you buy into this, you cannot, you, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't. He makes it very, he doesn't have fine print. He says it very boldly. And it reads like this in John 6, 66. He says, after this, many of his disciples turned, black, turned back and no longer walked after him. I love making a crowd laugh, but I'm mortified being laughed at by a crowd. But Jesus didn't seem to mind that. Jesus was not forming a fan base. In fact, in Mark, Mark 8, there's a similar kind of a conversation, and it says Jesus spoke plainly to them. And Jesus speaks plainly to us. If you are going to be my disciple, sit down, don't do the math in your head, get out the calculator, and know what this means for you. And so he goes into the two metaphors we talked about, a builder constructing buildings. He's focusing on your materials. It's going to cost you not just, and do, please, when I say material, don't think we're talking about offerings and tithes and givings and all that kind of stuff, but like opening of your life, of your resource, of your knowledge, of your, your dreams, of your desires, of your will. There are a lot of things that I want that God says no and now at that point, that's a discipleship moment. Do I make Jesus the number one priority in my life or do I make what I want, what I say, what I feel, what I like, what I prefer to take precedence over Jesus? That's difficult. Think, think about this for a second. When, when he starts off this whole thing, he says to him, he says, uh, it, it, he says to him, sorry, it printed on two pages. He says, uh, whoever does not hate his own father or mother or wife or children or brother or sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Are you experiencing family worship? There was a movement called I'm, no, I'm Third that happened years back. Like, people would go around with a no necklace that said the, the number three and then had RD, which meant God first, other second, me last. I'm third. I'm third.
That's what it looks like when a pastor loses his place. And uh, if you're Italian here, like in Rhode Island at least, in Rhode Island Italians, they had mama worship. It's like, you listen to your mama, you're my baby. Like, Jesus could ask them to do something, be like, Jesus, I know you want that, but my mama asked me to do this, and I gotta do that. And we love our mothers, but there might be a time in our life where God says, me first, mom second. Me first, kids second. Me first, husband second. Me first, you second. Now don't, think that I'm not saying you don't love your mama. You do exactly what your mom says, no matter how old you are, right? We honor our mother and our father. There's a difference between honoring and being a disciple, and some people in this church actually have parents who are not following Jesus that are actually probably even going through being persecuted by family for following Jesus, being pushed in directions that God wouldn't want Jesus wouldn't want for their life, and they are forcing a choice. And Jesus says, if you do not love me more, and he uses the extreme of hate, father, mother, wives, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even you, you cannot be my disciple. I was really shocked. I never know really what's going to come out of uh, uh, Charity's mouth when she comes up to pray. But when she was up here last, a couple of Sundays ago, she just all of a sudden said, I feel like the Spirit's going to say something. And every time she says that, I'm like, whoa, let me put on my seatbelt. We're about to go somewhere. And she just began to talk to moms and said, those of you who are mothers that have little children, you say I have no time to pray. But you'll never have time to pray. Something else will say that. You're, you're always going to have your kids. And then it's going to be something else and something else. God wants you to pray. I was like, whoa, that's a kind of an application here of like mother's father's sister. It doesn't mean that you hate your mom or you hate your kids, but, but that you love God so much that you, there's no competition or duplicity in your heart in comparison to what God would want for your life. He goes from talking about these relationships and then he says, whoever does not bear his cross cannot be my disciple. I remember hearing a story once where someone said, you know, a guy went to heaven, and he had a vision, and his life was really difficult, so he goes, Jesus, please, please, my cross is too much for me to bear. I, I can't, I can't do it. And Jesus looks at him and says, I love you, my son. I'll let you change your cross that you're carrying in this life for anyone in this room that you pick. And so he goes into the room, and he's looking, and he sees huge, heavy crosses. He sees painful crosses with you know, splinters and, and heavy metal crosses and iron. That's not like the music, right? Uh, but it's like the metal, like heavy, and all that. And he goes through all that, and finally he sees this teeny tiny cross that you could put on a necklace, and he says, oh, here it is. He goes, this is the cross I want. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, I'm sorry, son. I, I, I should have made that clear. Actually, you can't take that one. That's the one you brought in. What does it look like to carry a cross? What did Jesus' cross look like? To be innocent and yet bearing the guilt of the world. Jesus says, no, whoever does not bear his own cross, and I am grateful that my cross, in comparison to some of the ministers and leaders and Christians in the world, mine 
and it's pretty portable. But some of you in this church have been called to carry heavy crosses, have gone through very difficult situations, and God wants you to know that he sees it, that he loves you, that he bears your burdens, but there's no way around bearing your cross if you're going to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus speaks plainly to us about this. It will cost your very life. It will cost your comforts. Sometimes it will disrupt your priorities. It'll demand your surrender, but when you stand before Jesus and this world comes to an end and eternity begins and goes on forever, it will be worth it. So now he comes and he says, well, let me give you some illustrations here. And so he picks two, and I'll just hit this really quick. But he says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? How many of you are really good at floating math in your head? <laughs> My wife is excellent with math. I bet you that if you were to ask her how many boards are in the ceiling here, she could tell you because she's heard all of my sermons before, and so she, she's bored, and she looks up and she counts them. But she'll actually count how many boards there are in one of those slots, and then she'll see a different shaped one, and then she'll count how many are like that, how many are like that, and she'll do the math. There's two of those, two times 25, and then two times 100, and, and then all of a sudden she'll, I remember one time we were at a church, and I said, how, how many, somebody asked the pastor, how many boards are up there? And my wife just blurted out, 475. And I was like, You've been taken in the word of God, huh? <laughs> Some of us are really good at floating math, but Jesus is like, don't rush into this. If you're asking to be my disciple, there are going to be moments where the price may be more than you feel you can bear. But if I bore my cross, you can bear yours. But don't rush into this and just say, oh, well, I'll just jump in there and do it. You know, we look, at, we look at ourselves and we look at others that start this journey and then bounce off and we say, well, maybe they were overstretched. Uh, she was so easily distracted. Maybe they were too busy spending uh, on pleasure that they didn't do the math for the mortgage of, of what God wanted for their life. Whatever it is, they never thought it through all the way. And this pastor wants you, and because your Savior, Jesus, told us that we need to think about what this thing of being a follower of Christ really costs us. And some of us have reduced it to a prayer and saying, God, forgive me. And God's saying, okay, let's begin this walk for Christianity. And we're like, Jesus, I'm just too comfortable here. And that, that looks pretty painful. I don't want to do it. And, and God says, no, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to pick up that cross and end that relationship. Okay, God, I'll do that. And then you'll get there and Jesus will say, if you're going to pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me, you need to, to say, Mom, I love you, but you know what? I love Jesus more and I honor you and I respect you, but I'm going to have to follow God and, and I'm going to do this and if you need to be mad at me, that's okay, but we'll know that I love you and I will not disrespect you or honor you. Or, or God, what do you mean? I, this, this is my dream, my whole life. I wanted this career and this job and this place, and God just drops a bomb on your dreams and says, not that. I've been preparing for you for this. And then if you're willing as a disciple to follow the foots, in the footsteps of Jesus that he sets for you, you'll find that you went places and you've done things that you never could have made happen in your own life simply because you were willing to pay the price to follow him. Thank you for that hand clap.
And he says, what king going out to encounter other kings in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes at him with 20,000? Let me tell you what. Odds don't mean anything if the virtue and the, the reason is there. I think of, Themis I think of uh, Themistocles and I think of... Uh, King Leonidas with the 300, 300 men against the million men of Persia, and they hold them off in this spot. And any of you who are, are guys in this room, you probably, and some of you gals, you've probably seen the movie 300. Oh, you know, there's this whole movement of manhood, Spartans, you know. But like, this incredible, this 300 men know that if they put themselves in the entrance to a cave, that the numbers of the millions of Persian soldiers will be worthless because they will have to come to the front line and they can only go through 300 at a time, and that's exactly what would be waiting for them, 300 men. So they would take on a million men 300 at a time. And if you've, you've ever read the classical Greek uh, history of that or if you've ever seen the movie, you understand that they did some serious, serious damage being able to do it. Sometimes the right thing to do is to take a stand. You've got to declare war against your flesh. You've got to declare war against what hell is trying to take, your children, your, your peace, your, your life, your family, your friends, your neighbors. Like sometimes you've got to sit down and say, I can't not do anything. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Where you're sitting there and you're like, the odds are not, this isn't smart, this isn't right, but I just can't watch this. I need to take a stand. And God says, I need you to be that person to take a stand. And you rush into it, you go into it, and you say, God, here I am. Well, I don't know how, but you just do it. But then he says, listen, don't sit around like this king and just be like, yeah, we're going to go into war and we're going to do this. And you not think through the possibility of what might happen. What if you're outnumbered? Two to one. That's exactly what happened here. He says, he says there's 10,000 men that you've got, but then what happens if 20,000? Sorry, that's like what, four to one? I don't know. Math's not my thing. Dyslexic survival tactic, right? If you ever want to know, watch this. Wait, hold on, hold on one second, though. Um, what, what are the odds an army of 10,000 versus 20,000? That's what? What? Two to one? 20,000 against 10,000? Yep. So, listen, I didn't do any math. I just let you guys do it, and then I... <laughs> that's a survival tactic, by the way. But he says 20,000. Look at it. Verse 31, he says, he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes out against him with 20,000. Yeah, two to one. Sorry, I thought I was thinking like 10 versus 20,000. He's outnumbered. He's talking about the odds. Jesus is saying, I want you to understand something. If you're going to follow me, the odds are going to be against you. And you have to be willing to fight for the purpose, for the value, and for the virtue. And if willing, give your life. That's, that hasn't been demanded of me. So I have no right speaking to you in that way to say, let me tell you what. See, I'm not up here today speaking down to you about discipleship. I'm actually bringing down to us discipleship from what Jesus has said to us, to me, to you. 
That hasn't even been required of me. But he says the odds are against you. It's not underestimating your opponent if you never give a thought to what it takes. Maybe the king was more focused on how his court viewed him. Maybe the queen was full of pride. Maybe they desired the land and didn't consider that uh, they wouldn't be able to take it, let alone defend it. But man, discipleship costs you time. This is an interesting statistic I knew but didn't really know the number, but you spend about five to seven hours a day on your phone, in average. We're being discipled by Apple and Android instead of Jesus Christ. How do you read God's word when you spend that much time on a device? You don't. How do you do life with other people, coffee with other people, spend time with other people if you don't make the value of people and discipleship part of it? If you're giving so much time to this or other things, the truth is you don't. Maybe God will ask you, can you do it single? Maybe God will say, can you sacrifice being financially successful? Can you allow having a good enough family rather than pursuing the perfect Christian household and driving everyone in that goal and direction? We miss Jesus as the giver of our dreams and the director of our resources of our life. Wasn't it Jesus who said, not my will, thy will be done? I'm going to ask uh, the group to come up here as we close. I'd, I'd say that, you know, there's an interesting difference between test driving a car versus buying it, taking it home, and signing paperwork that you commit to the payments. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You don't just do that because what happens is, is the car gets repossessed if you don't do it and follow through. And then what does that do? That makes everybody around us say, well, maybe Jesus is a joke because it certainly looks it in that person's life. See, I always come very hard against legalism, but I think that sometimes I don't speak enough about our personal responsibility. You pray to prayer, Jesus came into your life and he loves you. And I always will speak um, to somebody who is broken and repentant because I know that it's not perfection that Jesus looks for, it's going in the right direction. But God has a lot to say about holiness. He has a lot to say about inappropriate sexuality. He has a lot to say about abuse and anger and unforgiveness and all of these things. We could go on and on and on and on. Those are costs of discipleship. And Jesus says, unless you are willing to pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me and set aside your dreams, it, unless, I ha unless I am Lord of all, I am not your Lord at all. He said in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, the Father. Titus 2.14, he said that Jesus is he who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from lawless deeds and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort, and yes, if necessary, and rebuke with all authority. In other words, what God is saying is, is that if you want to be my disciple, it's more than just the prayer. You have a part in the participation. 
It doesn't mean that he is looking for perfection, but he, if he's putting his finger on something in your life and he's saying, you know that that is not holiness, you know that that is not right, you have a choice. You can either not only, you not only have to bring it to me in brokenness and conviction and, and in humility and say, God, I am not perfect, you are, please be my savior. But then you need to begin to pray a second prayer that says, God, there's no way I can walk away from this in myself. I need the power of your Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what God has given us to live a holy, righteous life. And we don't live a holy, righteous life in order to earn our way to heaven. We do it because we actually have gratitude for the one who gave his life for us. It is the proof that we are his disciples. It's the pursuit of holiness. It's one that we may never totally get. But Paul said it like this in the extreme. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved thee and gave himself for me. Jesus' death on the cross was not just simply something that he said and prayed and went on with his life. It was his life and it is our life and it should be our life and the teachings of Jesus should be our direction, not our perfection. And we should be willing to lay down things and take up what God has told us to take up and to put in second place the things that we put in first place over him. And he ends it with this, he who has an ear, let him hear. And that, in that language, in the Hebrew concept of this rabbinic phrase is not simply like, hey, if you can hear me in the back row, do what it says. No, to hear, shema, is to obey. Jesus is saying, there's no misunderstanding with what I'm saying here. The question is, is will you obey it? Will you do it? They're playing softly in the background. I want to share with you the life of a follower of Christ who I'm so deeply proud of. His name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was alive right after the time of World War I. Both America and Germany and the world were in the Great Depression. And Germany began a campaign to begin to say the reason why the financial crisis is in Europe is, is because of the Jewish people. What a lot of people don't know is, is that the Jewish people, the Christians had this idea that, that since Judas was the money handler and Matthew walked away from the taxpayer's table, money was no job for a Christian. So they handed all of the money banking and system over to the Jewish people in Europe. Well, guess what? They got good at compounded interest and they began to become very successful. But then the people became very angry with the Jewish people and they blamed everything on them, wanting to undermine them, wanting to destroy them, wanting to discredit them. And they say, the reason why we're in this mess is because of the Jewish people. And out of the midst of that arises a man named Adolf Hitler. In a book, I'd, it's a thick read, so I wouldn't recommend it, but it's called Aryan Jesus. It talks about how Hitler began to get into the Lutheran church. Many of those people that were in the SS party, the Nazi party, were Christians, they were Lutherans, and they began to teach uh, anti-Semitism, and, and in the midst of that, Hitler began to rise to power and build one of the great armies of the world, not knowing that his whole plan was eventually that he would take a group of people and begin to liquidate them from the face of the earth. And it's in this time that Diedrich Bonhoeffer rises up and he gives a broadcast in those days would be a podcast 
on the radio, and he begins to denounce the SS's hatred of the Jewish people, the injustice that they're doing towards them, what the gospel had to say about the Jewish people and all people and how we should treat one another, begins to mention Hitler by name and how it was inappropriate that he was being given the status of Jesus, and in the middle of his broadcast, they cut him off. They then turn to him and they say, you are not allowed to make any public speeches and you're not allowed to make any broadcasts from here forward. He takes off to America and while he's in America, it's during the time where segregation is still going on and he's looking at that and he's looking back at Germany and he's saying this is just not right. It was actually that visit that deeply impacted him all the more of what was happening to the Jewish people. Now understand what was happening to the Jewish people was national level mobilized genocide on a whole completely different level but this is what he was sitting in America safe and while he was there he starts a thing called the confession church an underground church that preached the true gospel he said I made a mistake coming to America I must live through this period difficult in our national history with Christian people in Germany I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in its trials with my people during it. When he returns, he comes back to Germany and he gets invited into an inner circle of people. You see, the horrors of what Germany did during World War II, it took 70 years before people could begin to talk about the good people behind the scenes that were trying to undermine it. And it's captured in a movie called Valkyrie. And they turn to Bonhoeffer, these intelligence leaders of, of the German party, and they say, Hitler is destroying our country, murdering a people, and we have to get rid of him. And they say, we're not gonna ask you to be a part of that, but would you begin to talk to Christian leaders throughout Europe and get message to Winston Churchill that not everybody in Germany was like him, and that we are going to try and displace him. And they cracked this master plan where they would assassinate Hitler, but then they would peacefully gain control of the entire country. And if you've never seen that film, you should. Behind that is Diedrich Bonhoeffer communicating with the churches in England. Long story short, he gets caught. And he's sentenced to death. He's brought before the, the gallows, and a pastor is there, or a doctor is there, and he writes this down. Listen to this. It says, I saw Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, pray praying fervently to God. I was so moved by how certain he was that God was hearing his prayer. At the place of execution, again, he said a short prayer and climbed the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. He said, as a doctor in the 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And here, this man who denied himself, took up his cross and followed Jesus to his very death in the face of evil, writes things like this, to deny oneself is to beware of only Christ and no more of self, to see only him who gives before and no more the road which is too difficult for us. Once more, all that is self-denial can say is simply this, he leads the way and I keep close to him. 
He says this, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolving of sin without personal confession. He was no longer alive. He was dead. And that's what water baptism is. It's me that no longer lives. It's Christ that lives in me and the, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God 